We're in Psalm 31 tonight. Psalm 31. I'm going to pray for us here in just a moment, and then we are going to read Psalm 31. It's one of the longer psalms we've had thus far, 24 verses. We're going to read the entire thing because it's worth it. And then we'll make some comments about it and go from there. So, uh, Psalm 31. Let's pray together before we get started. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. and We're grateful, Lord, for this opportunity to gather and to focus our mind's attention and heart's affection upon you. God, I pray that you would use this time in your word, this study, to encourage us, to inspire us, to change us, to mold us and make us into who you want us to be. So have your way in our midst, Lord. We're grateful for your presence. We're grateful for the power and authority and clarity of your word. Uh, We just pray that we would leave tonight knowing that we have met with God. And we'll thank you, Lord, for that grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Look there with me, Psalm 31. It says in the little letters, To the choir master, a psalm of David. So we learn from that that David wrote it, and it's intended to be set to song. It's for the choir master to use in corporate worship gatherings. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline, that means to turn. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden from me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You redeem me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction and have known the distress of my soul. And you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I've become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I've been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord, I say. You are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you. In the sight of the children of mankind, in the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I'm cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage. All you who wait upon the Lord, or wait for the Lord. Uh, Psalm 31. Now the Psalms are a collection of hymns. They're a collection of poetic um, 
renderings meant to be used in corporate worship. And the theme of the entire book of Psalms is found there in your notes, written by Kendall Easley. God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion, in personal or community life. And so uh, we're reminded here that the Psalms are indicators or reminders that no matter what we're going through, God is worthy of our worship. No matter what we're going through, God is worthy of our trust and confidence. And so we're reminded of that uh, all throughout the book of Psalms. And I've titled Psalm 31, Our Rock of Refuge. Our Rock of Refuge. Now, uh, before I give you some uh, some thoughts about this psalm and, and as we kind of break it down, I want to give you some just kind of beginning um, ideas uh, related to this psalm. First of all, let's talk about the theme of this psalm. What is the psalm about? How would you summarize the theme? Well, it's very simple. God is a rock and we should take refuge in him. That's what the psalm's about. God is a rock. We should take refuge in him. Do you notice what it said there uh, in verse 1? In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Then he says in verse 3, for you are my rock and my fortress. For your namesake, you lead me and guide me. And so God is a rock and we should take refuge in him. James Montgomery Boyce says this, these verses have a theme. It is that God is the psalmist's rock of refuge. This was a popular metaphor with David being found in Psalm 18, 19, 28, 61, 62, and 71. Unquestionably, it comes from the years when he was fleeing from King Saul and so often found safety in the high rocks of the Judean wilderness. On the plain, David's warrior band was no match for the numerically superior and better equipped troops of his enemy. Troops of his enemy, but he was safe if he fled to the mountains. In the same way, David saw God as his true rock of refuge when his later enemies encircled him and set traps for his soul. And so, when David was on the run from enemies, he would go to the mountains, go to the rocks, go to the caves, and he would hide in those rocks. And he's using that as a metaphor for God. That God is the one in whom he takes refuge. God is the safe place from his enemies. He is his rock of refuge. That's the theme of the psalm. God's a rock. He's, he's one that is strong. He's one that we can build our lives upon. And because of that, we should take refuge. We should go to him with our lives. Secondly, the purpose of this psalm. We talked about the theme of the psalm. What is the purpose of the psalm? The purpose is simply to petition and praise our rock in the midst of our troubles. To petition and praise our rock in the midst of our troubles. Notice how it starts in the little small letters right before verse 1. And by the way, I I said this earlier on in our study of Psalms, the small letters before verse 1, that's inspired text. That's in the original Hebrew Bible. And it says there, to the choir master. So this, this hymn, this psalm, is meant specifically to be sung in corporate worship. And if you read it, it's a lament. It's David lamenting about how desperate his situation is, how troubled he is. And he wants to, he wants to write this hymn to be sung so people can uh, connect with their own troubles in life. Now, have you ever heard someone say, and I've probably been guilty of saying this in my pastoral ministry, you ever heard someone say, hey, we're glad you're at church today. Just, 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 you know, just set your troubles aside and, and focus upon the Lord this morning. You know, don't, don't worry about your troubles. Just kind of set them to the side so you can focus. You ever heard someone say that before? I'm almost positive I've probably said something like that before uh, through the years. But that's, that's really not a biblical concept. The biblical concept is, hey, ignore your troubles in life. Ignore your circumstances and act like everything's okay. 
That, that's not what the Bible tells us to do. The Bible tells us to come as troubled and as broken as we are to the, to the feet of our great God and to place those troubles and to place our lives at his feet because he's the only one that can help us. See the difference there? And so the psalmist here, this psalm is written to say, hey, I've got troubles. I'm, I'm going to sing about my troubles. I'm going to sing about how desperate I am. I'm going to sing about how, how much I'm hurting because it is in that worship that I am laying my troubles at the feet of God. And so the purpose of the psalm is to petition, to ask God for help, and to praise Him in the midst of our troubles. But there's a third thing I want you to see about this psalm. This is fascinating. I want to say a word about the popularity of this psalm. I didn't know this until I began to study, but this psalm is quoted a lot in other places in the Bible. For example, example, uh, the phrase, terror on every side. Look what it says there in verse 13. It says, I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side. That phrase, terror on every side, meaning you're surrounded by enemies, was used by Jeremiah no less than six times in his writings. He, he used that phrase. He liked that phrase. He got it from Psalm 31. And in his book that we call Jeremiah, which I'm reading right now in my quiet time, he, he used that phrase, terror on every side, terror on every side, terror on every side. In his prayer of repentance from the inside of the great fish, Jonah, remember Jonah was swallowed by a big fish? Remember that story? God said, go to Nineveh. And he said, I don't want to go to Nineveh. So he went the opposite direction. And he thought he could run from God, but God knew where he was and uh, caused a great storm. The sailors threw him in the, the water. A great fish swallowed him. And it's when he's in the belly of the great fish that Jonah says, okay, I might have messed up. I might have blown it. Maybe it's not a good thing that I'm in the belly of a fish. And so he begins to pray a prayer of repentance. He wants to get right with God. And as he prays that prayer of repentance, he quotes verse 6 of Psalm 31 when he mentions those who cling to worthless idols. You can read about that in Jonah chapter 2 verse 8 where he uses that phraseology from Psalm 31. The author of Psalm 71, who's anonymous, we don't know who the author of Psalm 71 was, used the first verses of Psalm 31 as his opening. So whoever wrote Psalm 71 used David's words from Psalm 31. So again, it's quoted in other places. But maybe the most striking usage of Psalm 31 we see in the Bible comes from the lips of Jesus himself. Look what it says there in Psalm 31 verse 5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. Do you know Jesus said those words on the cross? Did you know those were Jesus' final words? Right before Jesus breathed his last breath, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He was taking a phrase from Psalm 31 and using it as his own. So Jesus quoted this psalm. And so this was a very popular psalm. It's not a very well-known psalm in the life of the church. Probably none of you, when you walked in tonight, could tell me what Psalm 31 was generally about. It's just not a very well-known psalm. But it seems like in the Hebrew world, this was a very popular psalm because it was, uh, it was uh, phrases were used by other writers. And so just an interesting thought about Psalm 31. But again, the theme is God is a rock and we should take our refuge in him. And what I want to do tonight is I want to walk through the psalm quickly and I want to give you four reasons that we should take refuge in the Lord. Four reasons we should take refuge in the Lord. And by the way, to take refuge in the Lord means you trust him. It means you come to him because you believe he is your help, he is your hope, he is your savior. 
So you can either run to God and make him your refuge, trusting in him, or you can run away from God. Those are your two options in life. I want to give you four reasons why you ought to run to God and make him your refuge. And they're found right here in this psalm. So, number one, first reason we should take our refuge in the Lord, he answers our prayers. He answers our prayers. There, there are a lot of blessings and benefits that come from knowing the Lord in a personal way. Maybe one of the most extraordinary benefits we see in the God's Word is that the God of the universe, who spoke the universe into existence, hears us when we pray. And He responds to our prayers. Look what it says there. In Psalm 31, verse 2, incline your ear to me, rescue me speedily. So he's saying, God, I'm, I'm praying, I'm calling out to you, and I need your help. David displayed confidence that when he prayed, God would respond. And we need to pray with that same confidence that, that if, if God is our refuge, if he's our Savior, if we know him in a personal way, when we pray, he hears us and responds. What a breathtaking thought. Now, I read this past week, that scientists have discovered, yet again, that the universe is larger than they first thought or previously thought. And they just found out, listen to this, they just found out that there are trillions more galaxies than they originally thought. Trillions more. I mean, they were missing the number by trillions. And God just spoke, and it was there. I mean, he, he spoke, and those trillions of galaxies leapt into existence. That's pretty awesome, Right? That same God, that same God will respond to your prayer and bring his omnipotence and omniscience to bear on your life. That means he brings his power and his wisdom to bear on your life. That's the incredible thought, isn't it? That God will respond to your prayers. Why wouldn't you want that? I mean, you can run to God and have the most powerful being in the universe, one who created the universe, answer your prayers, or you can run from God and try to do life by yourself. Try to do life in your own strength. Try to figure it out on your own. Try to pick yourselves up by the bootstraps. Why would you do that when God says, if you'll come to me, if you'll make me your refuge, I will answer your prayers. Why would you not take God up on that offer, right? And David here is saying, the reason that... that, that it's good for God to be your refuge is because he answers when we pray. And so if God is your refuge, if you have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, if he's your personal Lord and Savior so you know God in a personal way, you need to understand the power of prayer and you need to pray with confidence that God wants you to pray and God loves to respond and God loves to answer you when you pray. He answers our Prayers. I've been amazed, really, these last couple of years. I've tried in my own personal prayer life to pray more specifically. I mean, to pray for like really specific things. Because when you pray something specifically and God answers, I mean, you just, hey, that was God that did that, right? One coincidence, I asked God for something specific and He answered it specifically. And, and I've been seeing God answer very specific prayers in my life. And it's thrilling that, that the God who made trillions of galaxies, knows me by name and cares about what I bring to his throne of grace and actually responds. Isn't that incredible? 
It's just, it's just amazing. And so we need to, to run to God, make Him our refuge, because He answers our prayers. Number two, another reason we should take refuge in the Lord. He is able to handle our lives. He is able to handle our lives. Let me give you four ways that God can help you in your life. Number one, God guides. Look what it says in verse 3. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. Again, the thought that the God of the universe cares enough about you to lead you and guide you through life is an amazing thought. And God guides us. He leads us. If we are open to his leadership, if we are obedient to him, if we are surrendered to him, he will lead us exactly to where he wants to take us. And so God guides us through life. One of my favorite hymns, this is, I mean, and I, I know I say this a lot, but this is a, a top three favorite hymn. All right? It's, it's depending on the day of the week, it's sometimes number one. Sometimes it's number two, sometimes it's number three, but I, but I love this hymn. It's called, All the Way My Savior Leads Me. I love that song. and It says, I know whatever befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. And all the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside me? Love that hymn. But the idea is that God guides us. He leads us in this life. Secondly, God protects. Look in verse 4. You take me out of the net they have hidden from me. He's surrounded by enemies, he says. You are my refuge. And many other verses in Psalm 31, he's talking about the enemies that are after him. Now, again, there's debate over what time period this is referring to in David's life. And it's hard to know because probably 75% of David's life, he was surrounded by enemies. I mean, folks that wanted to kill him and destroy him. So we don't know exactly what time period he's talking about, but he's surrounded by enemies and he's He's desperate, but he sees that God has protected him. He says, you've, you've taken me out of the net. They threw a cast a net for me, and you, you rescued me from their net. And so David here is talking about God's protection. Now, here's what I want you to understand. I say this all the time, but it really is a remarkable statement. If God is your refuge, if you have a personal relationship with God, nothing can touch your life unless God allows it. It's a biblical statement, right? Nothing can touch your life unless God allows it. And if he allows it, he has a good purpose for it. That's good news, right? Nothing can touch your life. No one can touch your life unless God allows it. Lottie Moon, who we're celebrating through our Christmas offering, the money goes to international missions. She's a a heroine of the faith. I was a missionary in the late 1800s in China. Uh, Lottie Moon said, I have a firm conviction that I'm immortal until my work on earth is done. Isn't that good? You're, listen, you're not going to die until God's done with your life. It's just not going to happen. Don't matter who wants you dead or how dangerous it is out there or what the Zika virus is doing or what terrorism's go, doing or whatever. Listen, you're not going to die until God has fulfilled his purpose for your life. And until then, God's going to protect you. I mean, you can't lose, can you? We can't lose. And so, God guides God protects. Third, God rescues. God rescues. Verses 11 through 18, he's speaking of the rescue from enemies. Because of all my adversaries, I've become a reproach, especially to my neighbors. Verse 11, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I've become, 
I've been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many terror on every side as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies, from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your stead. Fast love. Notice that phrase, save me in your stead, fast love. David understood what it was like for God to rescue him. But here's the neat thing about David. David not only understood rescue from enemies that wanted to take his life, David understood what it was like to be rescued from his sin. He understood what it was like to be forgiven. As a matter of fact, next week is Psalm 32, One of my favorite psalms. I'm telling you, Psalm 32 is about forgiveness and God counting us righteous. You don't want to miss Psalm 32 next. I'm telling you, it's good, good stuff, all right? So so David understood God's forgiveness. He understood being rescued from enemies. He understood being rescued from his own sin. He understood that God is a Savior who saves from enemies and saves from sin because of his steadfast love. And so David understood that God is a rescuer. He's one that rescues us from our sin. Uh, I don't know if you saw these stories from the recent flooding in Louisiana, but I saw stories on several different outlets about the Cajun Navy. Did you see these these stories? Uh, There were so many people that were in... um, areas afflicted by the floodwaters. They didn't have enough rescue personnel to get to them. Well, all these uh, fishermen and, and, and duck hunters and, and these guys got their boats out. And they said, we'll go to work. And they called them the Cajun Navy. It's in Louisiana. And, and, and these guys were, were going up to houses, getting families out, getting animals out. And uh, several outlets saw how significant their work was. The cage, and they were rescuers. And I just love the idea of, of someone in need, someone is in danger of perishing, and, and you see someone come to their rescue. That's what Jesus did for us, right? We are lost in our sins, overwhelmed by our sin nature. We deserve hell. We deserve eternal separation from God. But Jesus loves us so much. He left heaven, came to earth, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the grave, and then he begins to draw us with the power of the gospel, showing us our need for a Savior. And when I was nine years old, Jesus Christ came to my rescue. And it's glorious. And David here is saying, I'm glad that God rescues. He can handle my life. He is a God who saves with his steadfast love. Fourth, God sustains. Look in verse 24. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Be strong, let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. That's kind of his summary verse in this psalm. Derek Kidner, an Old Testament scholar, says this. Let your heart take courage, that phrase that we see there, could equally be translated, he shall strengthen your heart. It could go either way. It could be translated, let your heart take courage, or he shall strengthen your heart. The latter seems the more meaningful, an assurance of help to those who dare to count on it. He says, but in either case, whatever way you translate it, it does not, listen to this, this phrase does not promise an end to trouble, rather the strength to meet it. So this idea that God will strengthen our heart, our heart can be courageous. The idea is that it's not that you won't face trouble in this life. The idea is that God will give you what you need to, to get you through the trouble. That makes sense? Now, if you hear a preacher saying, 
that, that there, there's going to be no trouble in your life if you believe the right thing or have enough faith. They are lying to you. That's called the prosperity gospel, and it is unbiblical. These, these, these preachers say, hey, uh, if you just, hey, if you just serve Jesus, then you'll get the job promotion, you get the new house and the better car, and, and uh, everything will just go great. No, 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 no. God never promised to remove our troubles, all of our troubles in this life. If he did that, this would be heaven, and this isn't heaven, is it? We're looking forward to heaven. We get heaven, though we know we're troubles. But in this life, God has plans and purposes through the, the craziness of it all. But he promises to strengthen our hearts through it, to sustain us through the hardship. So he answers our prayers, and he's able to handle our lives. That's why we should take our uh, lives to him and take refuge in him. Here's the third thing. I'm going to spend a little bit more time here uh, because this is just interesting stuff. Let me tell you a reason you ought to make God your refuge. He loves us enough to discipline us. He loves us enough to discipline us. David says something interesting here in verse 9, and he picks up this theme also in Psalm 32, which we'll look at next week. But look in verse 9. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief. In other words, his eyes are worn out from tears. My soul and my body also. In other words, I am suffering is what he's saying. Physically suffering. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength, my physical strength fails me. And look at this. Because of my iniquity. Then he says, and my bones waste away. So David indicates here, I am dealing with some physical maladies. I'm dealing with some physical ailments. Because of my iniquity. Well, that's pretty interesting, isn't it? That would indicate that that you can experience physical consequences for iniquity, sin against God. So what's that all about, Wade? I mean, how do we understand that? Well, I want to give you just very quickly a theology of suffering. Just a brief theology, a way for us to think about suffering and put it in its right biblical context. And again, this is an entire sermon series, okay? What I'm about to give you in just a few minutes. But I want to give you just some handles to think about suffering in your life and in my life. Here's the first thought. All suffering is not caused by sin. All suffering is not caused by sin. Biblical example, Job. Right? Now, we know the backstory on Job... The reason Job was suffering is because God wanted to demonstrate through Job's life that someone can lose everything and still worship God and bless him. You remember the whole conversation between the Lord and Satan? Uh, The Lord says, have you considered my servant Job? He's so faithful, he's so righteous. And Satan says, the only reason that he's a good man, the only reason he's so faithful to you is because you bless him so much. If you take away his blessing, he'll turn his back on you, God. And so the Lord allows Satan to afflict Job to demonstrate to Satan and to demonstrate to others in that time and to demonstrate to us that you can lose everything and still worship God. That's what Job's about. But Job didn't know any of that. He didn't know about the conversation in heaven between the Lord and Satan. He just knows that he loses his family. He loses his livelihood. He loses his health. He's lost everything. Everything. And he doesn't understand why. Well, he has three friends that are going to come and comfort him. 
And Job ends up calling these three friends miserable comforters. And these three friends start out great because for seven days, they don't say a word. They just sit there in silence. And by the way, that's one of the best things you can do with someone who's suffering is just the ministry of presence. Just be there. Don't try to give them these one-liner, Christian one-liners to make them feel better. Just sit with them, right? Cry with them. Just be there. They're not going to remember what you said anyway unless it was insensitive. But they are going to remember that you were there. And these three friends were just there, sitting with Job, doing great, comforting their friend who was in anguish until they opened up their mouths. And they began to say, one at a time, the, 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 the majority of the book of Job is them, them and their speeches, these three friends, these cycles of speeches. These three friends begin to say, Job, you must have really blown it. Man, what'd you do? What, what did you do to bring all this on yourself? And Job keeps saying, guys, I don't know. I mean, I'm not perfect, but as far as I know, I was walking with God and trying to do the right thing and trying to point my family in the right direction. And I wasn't defrauding anybody or living in immorality or iniquity. I mean, I, I've, I've, I've kept a short account of my sins with God. I'm not living in rebellion against him. There's nothing in my life that I'm aware of that would cause God to punish me with all of this suffering. And his friends are saying, okay, Job, fess up. Come on, tell us what. Tell us what you did. You did something. You had to do. See, they had bad theology. Their theology was: if you're suffering, you must have done something wrong. But and I've talked to people in the in the life of of uh, local churches as I've pastored through the years that uh, that are going through difficult times, and they're thinking, thinking, man, what I do to deserve this? And they're thinking, I must have done something wrong. Listen to me. There is a category, a biblical category, called unexplained suffering. There are some things that happen in your life, my life, that we just can't explain. We don't even know why. And it may be on the other side of eternity that we begin to understand why God allowed it. The old song, will understand it better by and by. There is a category of unexplained suffering. So first statement, all suffering is not caused by our sin. Everybody got that? If, someone, if someone's life is falling apart, that's not an indicator that they've done something wrong. It could be unexplained suffering. That makes sense? Hey, by the way, uh, the disciples of Jesus had the same bad theology. Remember in John chapter 9, they're walking along, and they see a man who's been blind since birth. And their question was this. uh, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? No category for unexplained suffering. Hey, if he's blind, either his parents blew it or he blew it. So why is he blind? And Jesus says it wasn't because he's his sin or because of his parents' sin. He was born blind for the glory of God. And he was used as a, as a, a demonstration of God's power. And Jesus healed his blindness there in John chapter 9. One of my favorite stories. Uh, great passage. But again, his disciples had bad theology. If he's blind, he must have done something wrong. Right? Bad theology. There is a category for unexplained suffering. So all suffering is not caused by our sin. Here's the second Statement about suffering. Some suffering can be because of sin. Some suffering can be. Some of the suffering we endure can be a consequence for rebellious decisions against God. That's what David's saying here. The reason I have these physical maladies in my life is because of my iniquity. 
So some suffering can be because of sin. So God can use even physical illness or physical ailment to get your attention. Right? You ever found yourself kind of just coasting through life, kind of ignoring God? I mean, you know you know better, and you know you need to be walking with Him and talking with Him and reading your Bible and, and, and really walking with the Lord, but you're just not. But then you find yourself really sick. And what do you find yourself doing that you haven't done in weeks? Praying. Right? Praying. Could it be sometimes that God will slow us down with, with sickness or ailment to get our attention? Right? Could it be that God sometimes puts us flat on our back so we have nowhere to look but up? Could it be? I think there is a biblical category for hardship that God brings into our life to get our attention. Listen to me. When that happens in the life of a Christian, it's not God being mean to you and being, you know, getting retribution, getting you back. It's God disciplining you as a loving heavenly father. That's what his discipline is all about. Look over with me. Hebrews chapter 12. Look, turn there with me very quickly. I'm show you this biblical category of discipline. Look what it says in verse 5. Hebrews 12 verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he what? Loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for the... For discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our what? Good, that we may share his holiness. Look at verse 11. This is a big amen right here. For, all, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Amen? But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. When my, my dad disciplined me growing up, I'm telling you, in the moment, it was not pleasant. It was painful. But now I can look back and say, I'm glad my dad loved me enough to get my attention when I was going the wrong direction so I would start going the right direction. I'm glad he loved me enough to discipline me. And listen to me, God as our heavenly father will do the same thing in our lives. If we are going in the wrong direction, he loves us too much to let us keep going that direction. He will intervene as a father intervenes in the life of their children and he will get our attention so we'll stop going the wrong direction, turn and go the right direction. Isn't that the purpose of discipline? It's, it comes from a heart of love. And sometimes that discipline can be physical ailment. That's what David says. The reason my body is wasting away is because of my iniquity. So physical ailment can be because of sin. Some suffering can be God allowing or causing some things in our lives to get our attention. And by the way, I'm glad that God loves me so much he doesn't leave me to myself. 
I'm glad that when he saved me, he didn't say, okay, Wade, you're in the kingdom now, you're going to heaven, good luck, see you then. Aren't you glad he didn't do that? No, he, he, he saved you, and at the moment of your conversion, he, he brought you into a relationship with himself that is an everyday deal. You're now his child, he's your father, and he is active in your life, and he cares too much about you just to let you do your own thing unhindered. God, as an act of love, will get your attention through discipline, and sometimes it can be very, very painful, even physically painful. I believe that's what's happening in David's life. David was a man after God's own heart. But David also displayed at times unrestrained passion in the wrong direction. And I believe that God used physical ailment, even the pressure from enemies, to get David's attention so he would go in the right direction and learn an important lesson. So some suffering can be because of sin. Which leads to the million dollar question. Okay, how do I know whether or not my suffering is just unexplained or I'm suffering because of sin? That's a good question, isn't it? Well, here's the deal. If you are a follower of Christ, if you're born again, the Holy Spirit lives in you. And one of the Holy Spirit's roles in your life and my life is to convict us of sin. I tell people, one of the ways I know I'm a Christian is because I can't get away with anything. When I, when I mess up as a Christian, immediately the Holy Spirit convicts my heart. Wait, you shouldn't have done that, shouldn't have said that, need to get right. Hey, listen, I've had, I, driving to church on a Sunday morning, I've had to call Claire and apologize so I could preach with a pure heart before you. How about that? Right? You know why I had to call and apologize? Because the Holy Spirit wouldn't leave me alone. Shouldn't have, you, you were too harsh, shouldn't have said that. Need to get right with your wife before you come and preach to all these people at Longview Point. Right? That's the role of the Holy Spirit. So here's what I believe, because I've experienced the convicting power of the Spirit so much in my life. I believe that if God is disciplining you through suffering because of sin in your life, you'll know exactly what that sin is. The Spirit will pinpoint, and you'll know it. You'll just know it. You don't have to say, is this unexplained suffering or is there something? No, you'll know, the Holy Spirit will show you, hey, there is something massive in your life that you need to address. He'll put his finger right on that issue in your heart and life. And so if you find yourself going through difficulty, through suffering, through hardship, maybe it's God getting your attention. And if he is, he'll show you exactly what that area is that you need to address. Now, if you're going through suffering and, and, you're, and you're, you're trying to walk with God, not perfect, but you're walking with God, and when you do sin, you want to get right with him, and, and you're trying to serve and honor him, you fear him, and you can't think of any major areas in your life well, you're probably experiencing just unexplained suffering. God has a purpose and a plan in it, and you'll understand it better by and by, but you may not understand it right now. Does that make sense? You may be Job. You may not know all the backstory, but God has a purpose and plan in it all. So let's kind of recap. You ready? All suffering is not caused by sin. Amen? Now, some suffering can be because of sin. Third, if God is disciplining us for a sin issue, the Spirit will point out the sin issue. Fourth, all suffering that God causes or allows is for your good and His glory. So again, how can you lose? If He causes suffering or if He allows suffering for whatever reason, it's, it's ultimately for your good. 
He's either using it to help you to get right with the Lord, or James 1 says God can use suffering in our life to build our character, to build our endurance, our patience. But whatever he's doing, he's allowing it for your good and ultimately for your glory. Jesus said to the man born blind, this blindness is for the glory of God. He's he's lived his whole life with blindness, but I'm going to show my power through this situation. I'm going to heal him. And so maybe sometimes your suffering is just so God can show a watching world how powerful he is. And so that's a quick, a brief theology of suffering. So back to Psalm 31. David here is mentioning, I believe, discipline. The reason my body is wasting away is because of my iniquity. God is my refuge, he is my rock, and he loves me enough to discipline me, even with physical ailment, to get my attention. That's what he's saying. And so why should we run to God and make him our refuge? Because he loves us too much to leave us alone. Amen? Loves too much to leave us alone. How many times have you talked to someone or maybe in your own life and you've gone through something very, very difficult and when you look back on it, you say, that was God getting my attention and I'm so grateful he did. God ever had to get your attention before? Raise your hand if he ever to get your attention. Yeah, so glad that he did. The, the prodigal son, God got his attention, right? He found himself eating pig food. And so what does it say? It says he came to his senses. Sometimes God has to allow suffering in our life so that we will come to our senses. Number four, fourth reason. Well, that took longer than I thought, that third point. Number four, why should we make God our refuge? Because he is storing some things up. He is storing some things up. Look back with me in Psalm 31. Let me show you this. By the way, I'll take some questions here in a moment after we're through. So if I maybe provoke some questions in your heart and mind based upon the theology of suffering, we can address those here in a moment. But notice what God is storing up. God is storing up, first of all, abundant goodness for those that fear him. Look what it says in Psalm 31, verse 19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness. Your your goodness, God, knows no limits. How abundant is your goodness. Now look what he says. Which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. So what he's saying here, he's saying this, God, those that have come to you and made you their refuge, those that know you in a personal way, those that are saved, those that are born again, they can expect that right now in their lives, you are storing up goodness. Now, if God, whose goodness is limitless, chooses to store up goodness for you, it's going to be pretty awesome. Can I get an amen? And right now, God is storing up goodness. It reminded me of Psalm 23, verse 6, where David said, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me when? All the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So if we know the Lord, if he is our refuge, we can expect goodness pursuing us here in this life and goodness for all of eternity. And the God of the universe is storing up goodness for those who fear him. So if you fear God, right now, God's storing up some goodness for you. That's awesome, isn't it? Right now, that's what he's doing. Storing up goodness for you. But 
Not only is God storing up abundant goodness for those that fear him, God is storing up abundant judgment for the proud. Look what it says in verse 23. Love the Lord, all you saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays. So earlier it's he abundantly stores goodness for those that fear him. But he abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. The one who doesn't think they need a refuge. The one that thinks they can live their life without God. The one that thinks they can do their own thing. You know what they can expect from God? Not abundant goodness. He says they can expect abundant judgment. Abundant judgment. They will be punished for their pride. Punished for their self-sufficiency. Punished for the idea that they could live life without God. And so God's storing some things up. Listen, look at it like this. Over here, God's storing up goodness. Over here, God's storing up judgment. Which of those do you want to experience? His goodness or His judgment? If you want to experience His goodness, you need to make sure that you've made your refuge in Him, that you've run to Him as your rock, that you have embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior so that God is your Savior, that God is the one you are building your life upon. God is your refuge. And Jesus is the only way to make God your refuge. Remember what Jesus said? I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the rock except through me. So if you want to make God your refuge and experience abundant goodness rather than abundant judgment, you receive Jesus Christ and his free gift of salvation by faith. You call on his name and ask him to save you and trust in what he's done for you. And when you make that decision, you'll be born again, you'll be forgiven, you'll be transformed, you'll be brought into a relationship with God whereby you can call him Father, and you'll know that God, the God of the universe, is storing up goodness for you. And that's good news, right? 